Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Uh, in our fortnightly podcast, we talk to early career dementia researchers about their research and careers, sharing knowledge, advice, and hopefully some inspiration. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director in the NIHR National Director for Dementia Research, working at University College London, and I'm delighted to be your host for this show. This week, we're going to be talking about fellowships, uh, specifically the rather unique and special fellowships funded by RIS Against Dementia and delivered in partnership with Alzheimer's Research UK. So I'm delighted to welcome this week's guests, uh, RIS Against Dementia Chief Executive, Dr. Penny Moyle. Hello, Penny. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having us. And a research fellow, Dr. Claire Durant from the University of Edinburgh. Hi, Claire. Hi, Adam. Lovely to be here. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Uh, Penny, could I perhaps come to you first to ask you to introduce yourself uh, and perhaps tell us a little bit about Race Against Dementia and how it came about? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm Penny Moyle. I'm the CEO of Race Against Dementia. I've been with the charity for two and a half years, I think, although the charity has been around slightly longer than that. Um, it was founded in 2016 uh, by Sir Jackie Stewart, the three-time world champion Grand Prix driver. Um, and it was inspired by the fact that his wife, Helen, was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. And when that happened, Sir Jackie and the family uh, thought, well, they'll get the best medical treatment available and that that will help. That had worked for them with other health uh, issues that they'd experienced. But of course, they uh, discovered the truth, which is that there are no disease modifying treatments available for any form of dementia. And so Race Against Dementia was set up to change that, to work towards breakthroughs that are so desperately needed in this area. Fantastic. Thank you, Penny. Um... And uh, Claire, could I, uh, I know you've been on the show before, but could you perhaps introduce yourself and tell us about your research? No worries. So um, my name's Dr. Claire Durrant and I'm a Race Against Dementia Fellow working at the University of Edinburgh. So I've just completed my first year of the fellowship um, out of five years. So it's a lovely long fellowship with lots of time to explore the questions that we want to ask. So Personally, my research is looking at understanding why the connections between nerve cells called synapses die in Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, such as frontal temporal dementia. And I'm particularly interested in the role of a protein called tau and whether or not the action of tau aggregation throughout disease is part of the reason we see these structures die and how we can stop that from happening. So one of the model systems I'm using is using thin sections of living brain both mouse and human from surgical resections um, and looking at how changes to tau um, affect synapses and how we can then look at trying to prevent that happening in disease. Now that's really interesting. I, I only know more about this because of course you and I spoke <laughs> on uh, the chat upon that I think some we of did, our listeners yeah. will have uh, picked up on. If you didn't uh, catch that you can go to uh, chatathon.uk and, and there's links there to all the videos where Claire talks about this some more. I think the fascinating part of that work is, is that you're working on living uh, tissue that's actually been uh, donated by people, isn't it? Rather than uh, post-mortem tissue or grown in a... 
in stem cells. Yeah, so I mean, you know, when you say donated living tissue, it sounds rather macabre as though you're going to go around taking it from people. Um, and in fact, that's absolutely not the case in the sense that we take it from people who've donated tissue that would be removed as a waste product of normal routine neurosurgical procedures. So things like tumor surgeries, where you have to access the tumor, which is deep inside the brain. But in order to get to that, you'd have to remove a surface layer of normal tissue, a bit like a keyhole surgery in order to be able to physically get to the tumour. Likewise, um, some people for epilepsy surgeries have parts of the brain removed, and again, um, the overlying pieces of brain required to be removed in that process. So with permission from the patient, and obviously with the surgeons and all the ethics um, being sorted in that way, we can then take that piece of tissue to the lab, cut it into very thin slices, and keep tiny sections of living human brain alive in dishes which allow us then to test how drugs and different treatments affect real living human brain cells, which, as you can imagine, you know, is very hard to do in any other way. Uh, yeah, and I, I suppose particularly the challenge about keeping that alive as well, because I, I guess donations like this aren't something you can collect every day. Absolutely not. So again, you know, brain surgery in itself is quite an extreme thing to have to undergo in your life, and the types of brain surgery where we can get tissue that isn't part of the tumour or isn't part of the epileptic focus, which will then go off to diagnostics or part of the patient's care, um, are even rarer still. So at the moment, it's kind of um, once a month to once every two months, we're lucky enough to get tissue. But certainly, um, as more surgeons hear about this and we get more people involved, um, it's becoming a more frequent thing. So you're, you're building up, starting to build up a repository of more, more tissue samples to, to keep you going full-time and for the next four years, I guess. Absolutely. And combining this kind of research with things like post-mortem research, where we can validate our findings in genuine Alzheimer's cases, and also alongside mouse model work means that the sort of toolkit of different models we have mean that we can take advantages from all of them. And we're certainly kept busy at all points, even if we have a break between official sort of human samples coming in. And what are the advantages of using um, tissue that's collected in this way over post-mortem tissue or stem cell models? Yeah, so obviously um, post-mortem tissue has the advantage that it would be genuine Alzheimer's disease cases. So the brain tissue that we take from living humans is usually not Alzheimer's disease. It's usually, like I said, tumour or epilepsy, but with the normal tissue surrounding there. Obviously, despite the fact it's not Alzheimer's disease, it is real adult living nerve cells. You know, induced pluripotent stem cells are fantastic. You can get human neurons from those, um, but we're not really sure how mature they are. In fact, I think it takes several years even for tau isoforms to get what we'd find in an adult human. So again, sort of the level of how much that would relate to a process like Alzheimer's, which is an adult neurodegenerative disease, um, is harder to know. But together, all of these models are very powerful. Um, and the iPS cells are very well validated now, um, but certainly alongside validating with human living brain cells in an environment where they've grown throughout their life in the right environment with the right cell types, it's a fantastic way of exploring adult human cells in a way that's pretty difficult to do in any other kind of format. You make a good case for that. You could see how, because there aren't many people working with this particular tissue at the moment, I, I imagine, are there? No, it's certainly um, a restricted technique at the moment in the sense that A, you need access to the tissue, but also it requires quite a lot of expertise in how we keep them. And usually it's people like me who've come from slice cultures in mouse models um, and then sort of bringing that more into the human. 
So, you know, short-term human brain slices where you keep them for 24 hours and do electrophysiology, they're more common, but being able to keep them alive for a bit longer in order to see long-term drug effects is certainly something you need to have a bit of expertise in, so which is certainly developing around the country um, and globally as well now. And this sounds like something we could dedicate a webinar to 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 spread the to <laughs> spread the knowledge and uh, encourage others to consider uh, this type of work in the future. So, uh, just coming back to the fellowship, you're approaching the end of your first year, which I, yeah. I guess wasn't really the year you expected. Um, <laughs> How have you how have you managed because your work is very specifically lab based how have you managed to keep going uh, in the last year or well, last six months yeah I mean absolutely it's a question we commonly get asked so like everyone in the country um, from the end of March till the end of June um, we were locked out of the lab completely but as many scientists know being locked physically out of the lab even as a lab based scientist does not mean research stops um, in fact so for me, it meant I had a lot of data, fortunately. Um, I got off the ground quite quickly when I started in Edinburgh, so I already had things like images to analyze, data to start you know, synthesizing and working out my next experiments. So that took up a lot of time. And in that time, I also thought, well, I'm gonna really start thinking about my hypothesis and really explore some of the ideas around that. Um, one of the things that I did was um, alongside a first year PhD student, we actually got together and we wrote um, a paper where we analyzed 600 papers which were published um, around the world, all about the proteins that we know, well, we think we know are toxic in Alzheimer's disease. Do they have any function besides being toxic? I mean, evolution tells us that must be the case because we found that you know, tau protein, for example, hundreds of millions of years of evolution, um, and we see the same protein existing in sharks. Likewise, amyloid beta has been found as early as sea anemones. So we're not talking about strange proteins that have popped into existence to cause disease. They have been around since very early in time. And what the student and I found is, as suspected, um, when you really look for it in the literature, there are case after case after case arguing that actually these proteins serve important normal functions. And actually these normal functions could be disrupted both in Alzheimer's disease and similar dementias, but also if we target drugs in the wrong way. For example, if we just blanket remove all of tau, we might actually be causing more problems than we're solving. Um, so that was really interesting as it helped synthesize a lot of ideas. Um, we got the paper published in Acta Neuropathologica um, during lockdown, and it's been read over 4,000 times in the two months it's been published. Um, we've had lots of emails coming in asking about it, and it's, I think it's really helped synthesize both my ideas, but also hopefully challenging a bit of the dogma that exists out there, which is what Race Against Dementia is really seeking to do. That's fantastic. And that's a paper that otherwise might not have, might not have seen the light of day at this time. Absolutely not. I mean, it was, it was a mammoth effort from this PhD student, Sarah Kent, who's incredibly talented. Um, and we worked together on Zoom. We never actually met in person the whole time, but we divide and conquer, worked through the papers, started in huge databases of the findings from different ones, and then synthesized a report we were saying, well, actually, these proteins we think are toxic, here are 50 different ways in which they actually serve normal roles in the brain and how we need to protect that in therapy design. So hopefully it's given us a lot of food for thought, but also the wider field, I think, as well. That's exciting. And I was, I mean, my next question was, what's exciting you most about your work right now? But to be honest, it sounds like you've already answered that question, because I think that, <laughs> that in itself sounds 
sounds quite uh, exciting. So, so what have you, uh, what's the potential? What are you looking at in the next kind of six months now that you are back in the lab? So now that back in the lab, I'm really trying to accelerate on the actual working with the human brain tissue um, and also along with the collaborators I have who are in the drug development industry. So I have um, two industrial collaborators, one kind of based in the US and um, also here I have the AOUK Alpha Realta Drug Discovery Institute, so a subsidiary of Alzheimer's Research UK who are looking to see what kind of therapeutics we can develop. And sort of alongside both of them, we're trying to test some of the therapies to see how they affect um, synapses under different conditions. And that's really my sort of next big target to say, well, actually, let's really look at some therapies and see, optimize them for certain conditions. So certainly the next six months, that's where my head's going to be at, um, optimizing human brain slices and actually testing some drugs. And, and I imagine your funder... Uh, we'll be excited by that, uh, which brings me back to you, uh, Penny, because, of course, the reason for us talking today, again, is to come back to the fellowships. And it's really exciting to hear about um, Claire's work, which is really only possible because of the, the, the RAD, the Race Against Dementia Fellowship Programme. So, so, but, of course, this is what inspired me to want to talk to you both in, in talking to Claire in the chatathon was that I got a picture that this isn't just your average run-of-the-mill uh, distribution of funding that there's more to uh, Race Against Dementia Fellowship. Could you uh, maybe tell us what makes it unique? Sure. So when I joined Race Against Dementia, it was really clear that the trustees wanted to do something that was a bit different, that was innovative, uh, wanted to encourage some outside-of-the-box thinking, if you like, uh, but also really wanted to focus on early career researchers, bringing more people into the race, as we would say. Um, so I fairly quickly met some colleagues at Alzheimer's Research UK to talk about what you know, they were doing. And obviously they knew the space much better than I did, um, but were very helpful in uh, thinking about how we could work together to create something that would hit the spot. And we, so we settled on a fellowship program fairly quickly, but we wanted it to be a really attractive uh, fellowship that would uh, bring in the best and brightest of the field, uh, people like Claire. Um, and we knew there were some good fellowships out there. So, you know, Wellcome Trust and MRC offer some brilliant fellowships, um, but they tend to be available only to, or well, they're available to anybody, but they tend to be secured by people who have you know, done a couple of postdocs already and have you know, a longer track record. And we wanted to provide something for people who are fairly immediately post-PhD. So we restrict um, applications to people who are within three years of completion of their PhD. So they really are in the, sort of the early, early career researchers. The other thing is we've made it five years rather than three. So that's quite unusual for this stage of somebody's career. So it gives people a bit more time to be able to try out something that might uh, take a bit longer, might need to fail a few times before they uh, get it right with a new technique or might need to experiment with a few different techniques before they hit on the winning formula that's going to enable their research. And if you've got five years, you have a bit more time to do that. Whereas if you're on a three-year fellowship, you kind of spend the third year applying for the next fellowship, and that means you have to have results pretty early on. So we want to be able to give people a little more freedom than they might normally get in the standard three-year fellowship. The other part of Race Against Dementia Fellowships was this uh, big idea which really came from Sir Jackie is about injecting Formula One attitude into dementia research. 
So his experience of Formula One led him to believe that there's some different ways of doing things out there in the world, that maybe if we brought some of those into the lab, into dementia research, we might be able to speed up progress and get to some solutions more quickly. So that's, I think, the other side of the Race Against Dementia Fellowship Program is there is really quite an extensive development program uh, that we are, in fact, ourselves developing as we go to think about what can we learn from Formula One that can maybe be useful for our fellows and actually for the people they're working with and their labs, their colleagues, their professors um, that might be able to make a difference in just the way we go about doing research. Um, so that started early on. So when Claire first started uh, her fellowship program, we kicked off with a day where we visited Red Bull Racing's factory um, and got a bit of an insight into how uh, a Formula One factory looks. Uh, we later developed, uh, visited the McLaren factory, which is an amazing facility. Um, so getting a bit of an insight into what Formula One looks like. But possibly more importantly, we then sat down with some people who've made a study of Formula One. So we have a, a professor from Cranfield who's working with us, who's looked at what makes for a successful Formula One team and how can those lessons be applied in other organizations. So that's Prof Mark Jenkins. He's working with us to help us see what we can extract from Formula One and apply. The first things we really noticed were things about collaboration, teamwork and leadership. Now they all sound a bit like motherhood and apple pie. Of course, they're good things to have, but how do you instill them? If there's more to it than just saying, oh, you guys should collaborate. You should do that differently. Um, so what we've been putting together is essentially a leadership development program. So it's not unlike the Future Leaders program that exists elsewhere. It's not unlike some of the high potential programs I've seen work in other commercial organizations, but it's really bespoke. It's focused just on the four fellows we have at the moment. We will have a few more um, over time, but it's enabling us actually to experiment, to try out some things, see how they work, adapt, evolve, try it out again. So um, Claire may want to talk a bit more about these, but I'll just list the things that uh, we've been doing. So we've had some lessons in leadership. They've had uh, presentation training from somebody who works with uh, top athletes. We've had uh, performance coaching from a group called Hintzer, who again work with top athletes and also top people in the corporate world. Uh, we're gonna do a whole lot on teamwork in 2021. So really giving the fellows the benefits that they might not otherwise get just in a sort of run-of-the-mill fellowship. Claire, do you want to talk to some of those things? Because you've been on the receiving end. No, absolutely. And I think um, this is exactly right. This is the race against dementia difference. So aside from the five years, which is unbelievable and exceptional at the kind of career stage we're at, the, I really feel they're wanting to develop us as humans, um, not just as lab monkeys um, doing dementia research. They want us to develop as future leaders. And that is incredibly clear in all of the opportunities that we've been given. So just to pick some out of the air, because we could talk for hours just on this. Um, for example, the Hintzer performance training is effectively a life coach that we get to chat to one-on-one -on -one once a month um, to discuss everything from stress, um, how we're sleeping, how diet can impact our mood and impacts the way that we work. And it's not a case that they're expecting us to be running on a treadmill checking our vital signs it's absolutely not about that it's about you know for the lifestyles that we lead how can we be feeling the best that we possibly can um, to get what we want out of both life and our work and all of us have noticed a huge difference from small things like that 
And I can't think of any scheme, you know, junior or senior, or even to be honest, top professors at top universities having access to things like that, where not only are we caring about the science, we're also caring about the development of the people that we're putting into it. And that's, I mean, that really is fantastic because even institutions don't really look after their own people in, in exactly the same way. But I mean, this is something you can't help but think that if that, if that was spread more widely that we, you know, for the people that work there, they'd stay there longer. We wouldn't be losing people to uh, out of the, the field or out of science altogether because they'd be inspired to want to stay. I, I think it's interesting as well because there are synergies, aren't there, between Formula One and science in so much as... Um, when we talked earlier about, about teamwork and things, of course, teams in science is quite tricky because, of course, there is always that underlying competitive nature and that uh, being secretive between one lab to another, which is very similar in Formula One, I guess. You know, one team is very secretive. They cover their, their designs and what they're working on to other teams, but, but work together as a group is that I mean is that the kind of things that you're translating across is this about attitude and psychology as as well as some of those behaviors it's definitely about attitude and psychology and I think that the you know the context is a little different you know, there are elements of both collaboration and competitiveness in in both fields but they play out quite differently I think I think there's a lot more potential within the dementia research world to be more collaborative it's not like you're in a a literal race in the way that uh, Formula One are. Um, but actually we've seen collaboration across Formula One teams uh, in their different places. Well, you might not expect that. Um, so we do know that, that that is an important feature for human endeavor and definitely one to be encouraged in dementia research. And, yeah, I yeah, can see on. that. No, no, yeah. And I think, well, but I think the thing that we'll be focusing on, particularly in the next six to 12 months with our dementia researchers is the collaboration you would expect and hope that would happen, which is how they work most closely with their colleagues. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there are, are problems at the moment, but there are always the sort of to and fro of different personalities in any work group and thinking through those kind of things about how do we get the best out of each other? How do we communicate in ways that will make sense to the person on the receiving end, not just the person on the transmission end? So those kinds of things we're going to be looking at. And those will work, I think, for uh, our individual fellows with their kind of current research groups but I think they will also give them life lessons so that when they are heading up a new research group at some point in their future, they will take some of these lessons forward. So they will become the most brilliant leaders in dementia research. Yeah, I, I think that's, that sounds fantastic. I mean, and that competitiveness is something that whilst it might encourage um, people to ex excel, it can also be problematic, can't you? Because if, if, we had more transparency across what was going on, we would reduce the amount of duplication that we'd also probably progress more quickly. Um, so it's, it's great to see that work. And um, I, I know Alzheimer's Research UK are involved. We mentioned them before. So how, how are AR UK involved in this? Yeah, so they, they do all the grunt work, really. It's very kind of them that they, um, if you want to apply, that the application process is on their website. You can find it via our website and linking through, but they're actually the, the people who are managing all that process. So they will take in all the applications. We use their grant review board. 
to uh, review all the applications and shortlist and interview and make sure that you know, we're doing everything all within the appropriate guidelines for any uh, medical research charity um, without us having to have the expense of setting up our own grant review board and doing all of that kind of thing. So that's a great advantage for Race Against Dementia because it means that more of the pounds that we raise go straight through to funding the science because Alzheimer's Research UK are picking up a lot of that work. Um, they're also, they have the network, um, you're part of that network through whom we can tell everybody about the research fellowship and so that we can get applications from the widest range of people so as to bring in the best possible candidates. So they've been really helpful for us uh, in thinking about how to set it up in the first place, but actually also in the mechanics of running it, of setting up contracts, of doing the annual review, which uh, Claire went through a couple of weeks ago, um, which, you know, is both a, it's in one sense, it's a bit of a quality assurance. So we can go back to actually our funders to say, yes, your, your money's been well invested and look at the great progress they're making. But actually it was also quite a nice conversation, I think, Claire, between you Absolutely. and the other fellows and our scientific advisors, sharing ideas, sharing ideas about what might be next. That's, that's wonderful. And is Sir Jackie himself involved in those? Is, does that add some pressure when he suddenly drops into the into the meeting and says, "Right, I'm here, Claire. Tell me, tell me, what have you done with my money?" <laughs> well, we yes, okay, yes and no. We've kept the two things a little bit separate. So we had a first a, a scientific review, and we did keep that essentially to scientists. Um, I was the only kind of non-dementia person in the in the virtual room, and really didn't have much of a speaking part. I was there to learn, so we had that scientific part. And then we separately have had uh, an annual review with our trustees um, and, and actually separately again with some of our major donors. So it's a slightly different kind of conversation when you're talking to people who are not dementia scientists, um, but they are every bit as interested and engaged in the work that Claire's been doing. Absolutely, and feel very supportive by trustees. And like you said, having Sir Jackie sat in a meeting, listening and interested in your work, and he certainly really motivated for us all to do well not just for his own personal situation but he really sees that society as a whole has a problem that needs to be dealt with and I really admire the tenacity with which he's not just accepting that it's a difficult problem and therefore could leave it to someone else he's going no I've dealt with difficult problems before and I want to bring what I can and bring in other people with their own expertise to try and tackle it and I really admire his huge tenacity and huge sort of forward thinking that he has that in his 80s he's saying I'm going to put my energy into a dementia research charity which is incredible and, and I think I mean it'd be great to see more of this where you connect the people that are actually kind of funding the research with the with the researchers that are doing the work because I, I think it does help to understand and creates that kind of connection that inspires them to want to keep going that they can see progress because I think this is one of the challenges with science isn't it that we take the take the money disappear and the, the results can take so long to to come through until they're then published in papers which which aren't necessarily accessible so well done I mean that sounds that sounds brilliant and this is probably a bit of an awkward question to ask and it might be a bit of a non-question given the conversation we've just had but what what did inspire you to apply for this in the first place Claire? I mean for me I really honestly was thought this was just the most amazing scheme I'd ever seen. A, the five years um, and the encouragement to really bring out of the box thinking, 
to bring in multiple collaborators, um, to go across multiple institutions, if you so wish. It was just a, a way that you could really basically say, well, what science would I want to do if I didn't have money or time worries to do it? Which, you know, when you're three years out of your PhD, that's a phenomenal thing to be able to do. Most other fellowships, um, fantastic as they are, you are limited, as Penny said, by three years, by relatively limited funding, and ultimately knowing that, as you know, we all know, the process which you go through to, to apply for a fellowship takes at least six months, at least. You're looking at more like eight, nine months by the time you factor in writing time and actually going through to the interview process, which eats into the end of your time. So really, a three-year fellowship is, in effect, a six month getting used to a new institution, one year looking for the next jobs and really a year and a half of proper downtime to do work. So for me, it was just an absolute no brainer to say, well, I don't know what my chances are of getting this, but this is absolutely the way I want to do research and move forward. And just the opportunities beyond science as well with all of the extra career development and things, you know, whilst at the time it was fairly unknown what there'd be, just the thought that there was going to be development beyond simply just going into the lab and being left alone for five years was hugely appealing to me. And I, and I think we, we know we've, we've argued this before as well in trying to create those longer term contracts. It helps us, helps researchers as in their personal lives as well. I mean, if you want to go get a mortgage or settle in one place or do some of these Absolutely. things, those, those longer contracts uh, really do make a difference. Um, and what, I can't help but think, what, what about the engineering side of this? Because Formula One is fantastically innovative and has some amazing engineers and people behind it. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're only talking to you to, today, Claire, but I, you've got other fellows across the across the world uh, as well. Do it, does engineering come into part of this? Is have you managed to bring some of those people together with with the researchers? It's something we'd, we're really working on and would like to do. So right now, um, the four of us who are fellows, there are three of us who are quite primarily lab based, although. Um, Christy Hung in um, UCL, she's doing some sort of high throughput screening, which is quite technical um, with some of the machines they've got there. And then we have um, Cara Croft, who's working in Florida, who again is doing some fantastic um, brain slice work and some really technical microscopy and imaging, which is just so impressive. And then we have in um, Amsterdam and the Rochester Clinic and Mayo, we have Ellen Dix, who is doing some amazing computational work. And again, she's doing some stuff with MRI scanners and looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of images of patient brains. So at the moment, we're very much on the kind of the more traditional dementia science and then some of the machine learning type things Ellen's doing. But through some of our collaborations, we're already looking at ways that we can inject some of that engineering. So, you know, just yesterday, for example, Penny and I were in conversation with some of my sponsors, Dyson, um, and we were talking about you know, a small technical problem that we sometimes encounter with some of the um, imaging that we do. And, you know, you can just see their minds whizzing and they're saying, you know, we can potentially work around these problems and even by potentially 3D printing small pieces of plastic that could realign something. And working with these kind of people is just really inspiring to see how we can potentially take ideas from each other. And something that is incredibly complicated to me as a non-engineer is a five minute fun job on a print 3D printer to someone who does this every day. Um, and these are just that's, fantastic contacts to have. That, that's brilliant. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, be, having, having that expertise, I mean, perhaps not on call, but having access to expertise within a Formula One design factory or within Dyson or elsewhere, where just, you know, whether it is something small to make your life easier in the lab or to create a unique new tool that you need 
to help you do something more effectively. I think that's such a, an amazing, inspiring element to this that, that is so unique. Um, I skipped a question that I meant to ask you before, Penny, of course, with your uh, fellowship program now being open to applicants, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment. What kind of people are you, are you going to be looking for in this next round? Um, much the same as the last one. If we can get more people like Claire, that would be fantastic. Um, so principally, um, we're, we're looking for the strong science. You know, we, we need people who have demonstrated an appropriate track record for their sort of uh, career stage um, with a strong proposal for the kind of science they're going to want to do over the five-year fellowship. So we're very much led by uh, the, the quality of the applicant in that sense. Uh, but they also need to be up for this Formula One attitude thing. They don't need to be Formula One fans. Um, they need to have some appetite and curiosity and perhaps learning a bit about that other world. Um, but particularly to be interested in how can they make those connections? How can they take things from another field of endeavor and use them in their own re research or you know, project planning, or it could be any aspect of actually getting a piece of research done. But they need to want to make a big impact, want to make things different, have a sort of a drive and a thirst for learning. So there's that attitudinal piece, but first and foremost, they need to be, you know, great dementia scientists who are trying to solve a piece of the dementia puzzle. Yeah, I, I mean, you can see that having that attitude, at least there as a foundation to start with. So great science and, and open to being part of this. I guess being able to kind of comfortably talk about your work, I mean, it might not suit some of the more introverted people, perhaps. I don't know. Although, is that something you help you help bring out in people? I would say so. So, I, you know, introverts, please do apply, even if you don't feel like public speaking is your thing, um, because that's actually part of the training and support we can offer you. Um, but, you know, we're looking for the, the diamonds in the rough. We don't, don't mind them being, um, you know, not yet completely polished, uh, because that's definitely something that we can help with. But they need to have that, you know, they need to really care about the dementia science and, you know, show that they can do a good job of that and to be up for these sorts of changes. But anything uh, else, you know, we can help with. And that's really inspiring and encouraging that people shouldn't be discouraged if they're not confident in this way. That if you're, you've got good underlying research, you should you should apply. And Claire, having successfully navigated this application process, uh, what what advice would you give to anybody thinking of applying for this? I mean, so um, someone gave me some fantastic advice when I was applying, which is the sort of the three P's of a fellowship um, application. And all three of them need to be present for a successful one. And that's um, primarily the person. So who you are as an applicant and your ideas and where you see yourself going. The project, um, obviously the research ideas that you have, how you're going to physically do it, um, you know, the techniques that you've built up over time, will you need to learn new techniques? And the place. Are you going to a place which is going to be supported by world leading researchers? Will there be the equipment that you need to do it? Are you going to be in an environment where you will excel? And I would say that, you know, none of them are more important than the other. They're a triad which really depend on each other, because if any of those three things fall flat, the project um, will ultimately not be a success. So I think really when you're writing that application, if you just constantly have that in your mind and is this defending my project? Is it defending my, myself or is it defending the place I'm going to? And if it's none of those three things, it's probably not such a valuable aspect of the project. Um, and for me as well, I think 
start early. Um, it takes a long time to really sort of synthesize because you will have that moment where you're staring at a blank piece of paper and you go, oh my goodness, I can't do this. And you need to then go away for a day and then come back and go, no, I do have great ideas and I can write them down. So I wouldn't suggest applying um, the day before the deadline, but there's certainly lots of admin things that you need to do as well. So it's a question of making sure you start early and talk to people, um, talk to your admin team. I had some fantastic um, support from Edinburgh Research Office, despite the fact I was located in Cambridge at the time. Just called them up and said, look, I'm wanting to apply for a fellowship, which would be based in Edinburgh. Can you help me? And, you know, within a day I had details of all the finance team who were helping me do costings and details of all of the ways of admin deadlines and their phone numbers that I could ring at any point to give them the help. You know, so people will help if you ask for it. And I think don't sit there struggling alone if there's someone who's gone through the process before or know more about it than you, because there will be someone who can absolutely help. Brilliant. Um, we have actually done a podcast before on how to um, successfully apply for fellowships, which if you dig into our archive, you will, uh, listeners will find that there. Please do go and have a listen. We also have a uh, WhatsApp community group that has a real mixture of um, people at varying stages uh, that would still be fall into this early career researcher category who are always quite supportive. So people should um, find details under the uh, Ask an Expert section of the website and you can uh, join up to that as well, which you'll find a good community of people who are always willing to take a, a second look at applications and things. I, I read a, a really interesting um, thread on Twitter last week that was making a, uh, an argument for saying the first paragraph is the very first paragraph is the most important part to, to don't skimp on making that really interesting and good and making clear what your question um, so to be honest, I would agree, and I would go as far as to say as the lay abstract is the most important part. Um, and certainly for me, something particularly about the Race Against Dementia Fellowship was I did a lot of research about the fellowship beforehand, and I, I sort of saw that they were very interested in these out there ideas and this type of attitude of accelerating research and bringing in those ideas. So I made sure that that was reflected in my project. You know, I wasn't going to say this is a run-of-the-mill project for a Race Against Dementia application. This is ambitious for this reason, but achievable for this reason. And I think you really have to go with the fellowship you're applying to. Like, absolutely, if you're putting in multiple applications, you shouldn't have the same project, exactly the same project for a welcome trust versus a race against dementia. You can have similar ideas, but the way you would approach them will be different based on those fellowships. So really cater to race against dementia when you're thinking about writing that. That's, I mean, the same with, with jobs. I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, it's very, very sound advice and it sounds like they're very open to to looking at something that's a little bit creative and that maybe is a little unique as well no you know don't be afraid to apply if you've got an idea that that's not being done everywhere else and of course as um, Penny you mentioned before Alzheimer's Research UK provide the support and administration of the fellowship um, so we have also on the website got a, a whole range of um, blogs being written by people who've observed AI UK's uh, grant round review group meetings. Uh, so again, do have a look on the uh, website to see. And there are some really interesting little pieces of feedback there um, from people who've observed grants being reviewed by the panel. So these might uh, also, also help. So uh, Penny, sorry, just to come back to you again. Um, how do people find out more information? When, when is the deadline? So the deadline is January the 20th, 2021. 
So you've got a, a few months now to put together your applications, but as Claire says, do start soon if you're going to be doing this. Um, the easiest place to find details, oh, there are two easy places. One is to go to the Alzheimer's Research UK website and look at their fellowship programs and that will come up. Or if you search on Race Against Dementia on their website, you'll find it pretty easily. Or you can come to the Race Against Dementia website, which is just raceagainstdementia.com. Um, and then you click your way through to the fellowship program there. But it will just take you through to Alzheimer's Research UK because they're hosting the application process. Thank you. Um, so don't leave it till Christmas. All those, those research teams in universities will all be on leave. Don't, don't wait that long. I think it's early November now. Um, I think that still gives people plenty of time to, to write a really strong application. And at a time when there are so many of the other grants um, haven't been managed to be funded this year because of the, uh, the challenges with the pandemic and particularly charity funding, I think this is a wonderful opportunity that's, that's coming at the perfect time for some, so many people. So uh, hopefully it'll be competitive and, and, and good. And of course, I, is this something that's only for the, uh, many of our listeners are outside the UK, Penny, is this something that just for the UK or is it elsewhere? I am so glad you asked that question. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so within the Alzheimer's Research UK program, there is a requirement that you have an affiliation with a UK institution. So you do need to have a, you know, a connection in the UK, but we absolutely encourage you to um, share your time within the fellowship across a UK institution and some, somewhere else. So we're wanting people to sort of develop those collaborative international networks wherever possible. So I think Claire mentioned that one of our current fellows is currently in uh, Florida, although her affiliation is with UCL. So that's Cara Croft. Um, so, you know, absolutely sort of having some time in one place and some time in another. So it could be that you're an international uh, researcher somewhere outside the UK at the moment but if you can get an affiliation with a UK university then this fellowship could be for you you could spend some time wherever you are now and some time in the UK within this fellowship program so do think about it that way um, the other thing also to note is we have a couple of other fellowship programs up and running they currently don't have applications open but if they uh, are the sort of thing you're interested in keep in touch with our website and you'll find out when we do have applications again. So we have a, a, a collaboration with uh, Dementia Australia. So as you might imagine, that's for Australian researchers. Uh, so those applications closed just recently. So we're looking forward to announcing the two successful uh, fellows from that in the new year. Um, and we also have a collaboration with Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So we don't currently have anything open with them, but again, Claire mentioned Ellen Dix, who's the current incumbent of the Rad Mayo Fellowship. So, you know, we are doing things internationally. We want to make everything uh, have an international flavor so that our fellows are a, a global network amongst themselves. But even for this fellowship, which has UK in the title, it isn't only open to UK residents. I think if any of our listeners are outside the UK and the thing that might be uh, putting them off applying is this trying to find an affiliation. Please don't be discouraged. What I will try to do is I will try to get a blog together, uh, making a few suggestions on how you might find uh, somebody to work with in the UK. Um, and you can also drop us a line on Twitter. We know a lot of people and we can always uh, make introductions to, to people as well. Don't be 
don't be deterred. Um, and Adam, if I might just sort of interrupt equally, if you're in the UK and thinking about this, you will have a stronger application if you can have within your application to show how you're going to collaborate with some other institution outside of the UK. So do have that in mind as well. I, we didn't highlight it. Claire is actually working um, with some German collaborators uh, on this mm -hmm. technique. Um, so we sort of glossed over that slightly, but there is an international element for you as well. That's a really good point. And actually just something that comes to mind there is um, if you are in the UK, if you're a member of the Alzheimer's Association's iStart program, the professional interest areas there, you, if you're not in a professional interest area, have a look on the iStart website. You can sign up to a PIA there uh, and the groups in, uh, they're people from all over the world. And I think, you know, you don't have to go searching around Twitter if you're interested in, you know, something particular to do with um, neuroinflammation or something. There, there is a dedicated PIA to that and there will be people there you can, you can probably find who, who might be interested in talking to you. Um, but again, do, do reach out. Uh, I know Alzheimer's Research UK scientists uh, uh, on Twitter can be very helpful and ours as well. Thank you, Penny. I, I, before we kind of wrap up today, of course, um, I realise that Race Against Dementia is a charity uh, and some of our listeners might not be in the, in the um, market for a fellowship right now, but they are always looking for ways to help and fundraising activities to, sh to share and promote your work. Is there something that other people can do to, to support making more fellows next year? Sure. So anything you can do that helps raise awareness of Race Against Dementia and have people pop into our website and, and click on the donate button would be brilliant. The thing that we have going at the moment to help people want to visit our website, I guess, is the Memories video series. So Sir Jackie has done a series of videos with some of his famous and interesting friends talking about their memories with the link being, of course, that uh, dementia robs us of our memories, so we're wanting to you know, fight to protect yours. So if you can share the idea of memories and share the link to the memories part of our website to help people come and engage in some of that content, which is, is, is entertainment. But if while you're there you'd like to donate something, that would be brilliant too. But if you can't afford to at the moment, that's absolutely fine. But do just keep sharing the information, because at some point, point it's a numbers game and somebody will come to the website who will be able to donate and that's what we want to have encourage. Fantastic thank you Penny. Um, okay I think it's time to end today's show. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my guests Dr Penny Moyle and uh, Dr Claire Durant and Sir Jackie Stewart and Race Against Dementia Alzheimer's Research UK for supporting uh, researchers and providing this fantastic uh, opportunity. Uh, I do hope um, our listeners have been inspired by this show today to go away and to look on the website and to apply for this fellowship because it really does sound like an absolutely fantastic opportunity. Uh, you can find out more about Penny and Claire and the open call on our website which is dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk. You can also go directly to the Race Against Dementia's website which is raceagainstdementia.com or you'll find them on Twitter as well at Racing Dementia uh, and also as well on uh, Alzheimer's Research UK's website for the actual uh, application details. Um, thank you very much both. Thank you so Thanks, much. Adam. Um, 
everybody please remember this is uh, podcast is just a small part of what we do on our website you'll find details of all the available dementia research funding calls um, you'll find uh, blogs on career topics research and much more so please do drop by our website and register for our weekly updates and thank you all for listening Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.